How's everybody doing today? Good. It's so good to be here. Guys, I love this church. I may have only been here one other time, but I have gotten to know Jenny and Ryan and even Caleb and Percy a little bit. And, and this is just such a special place. I know I'm preaching to the choir, literally, but I just wanted you to know how humbled and honored I am to be with you here this morning. But I couldn't help but feel like a, a little bit of a substitute teacher, right? Like if you guys remember back in high school, if you walk into maybe your history class and you see like this stranger sitting at a desk. And for most of us, it's like, awesome, this is going to be a movie day, right? I can, I can take it easy, right? Or if you're more like me and my buddy Dave, who I went to high school with, who's here this morning, we kind of had some maybe more sinister thoughts of, hey, how are we going to torture this person over the next 45 minutes or so? Um, and so, you know, this morning, like I said, you know, you might be feeling that urge. I grew up in church. I know when the guest preacher gets up on the stage, you can have that tendency to, to maybe check out a little bit. And I don't blame you. I mean, Ryan and Jenny are just terrific ministers, terrific preachers. Um, but I do believe that we serve the same incredible God, and I believe he wants to reveal something to you today. So while I may have some payback coming my way for my rebellious high school years, I would encourage you today not to, to pass notes to your neighbors, but to take notes. I'd encourage you not to, to check out, but to dive in, because I do believe God is going to reveal himself in a new way through his scripture this morning. So would you open a word of prayer with me? Heavenly Father, uh, it is just so good to be with you this morning, God. We come before you this morning, God, with grateful hearts. We are so thankful for this chance to hear from you. Father, as we dive into your word this morning, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you draw us closer to you, God, through your word? And would you speak to us in that real and unmistakable way this morning? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Well, I have good news for you this morning, real hope. You are going to suffer. There's going to be pain and trials and heartbreak coming your way. Crickets, right? <laughs> I know what you're thinking, like, that's a horrible way to start a sermon. And does this guy know that it's June 30th, it's summertime, he's just supposed to be light, fun sermons? Well, that's not exactly how I roll, but I want you guys to stick with me because I do believe that by the end of our time today, you will see that there is good news in our suffering. About 12 years ago, I would have considered myself to be one-fifth of, you know, the American dream. My parents had three kids, including yours truly, and everything just sort of went right for us. They worked at a church. We grew up in that church. For the most part, we, we did the right things. We behaved. All of their friends would, would point to our family and say, man, you guys really, you, you have the, the American dream, right? We even had a white picket fence out in front of our house. Like, I'm not even kidding. We were that kind of Christmas card on the fridge picture of this family that really nothing goes wrong with, right? Until it all came crashing down. In the span of about a year, my parents' marriage started to falter in some significant ways. My relationship with my brother was just completely severed. And we almost lost my dad to a battle with depression. We weren't that Christmas card picture anymore. We were blindsided by this pain. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves in this dark valley of suffering, wondering what just happened. You know, we thought, you know, other families might go through this. You know, the Bible says we're going to face trials of all kinds, right? But, but not us, not the Cavenders, right? We were this shining example of a good Christian family. And then suffering hit. 
And all of a sudden, I found myself crying out to God, thinking, surely, surely God's going to save us. Surely God's going to heal that relationship, going to fix my parents' marriage. But those cries felt like they were unanswered. Like as if God wasn't there, or if he was there, he certainly didn't care to respond to these cries. Where was the reconciliation? Where was the healing I was looking for? Have you ever felt that way? Like in your pain, you cry out to God, and it just feels like there's nobody there. You might be suffering from a broken relationship, or you might be just drowning in debt, and you feel like there's no escape. Whatever that pain is that you're in right now, you may be feeling that that cry just goes on. It echoes and echoes and is never, never met or even responded to. And if you're here today in the midst of that suffering, I want you to know that Jesus knows your pain. He knows your pain because he has felt your agony. And Jesus wants to walk with you through that suffering to give you hope. So if you remember one thing this morning, if you take one note this morning, it's that Jesus knows your pain. He has felt your agony, and he wants to walk with you through that suffering. And that's a guarantee, right? It's it's a guarantee that I can make because it's a guarantee that's made in Scripture. We go all the way back to Psalm 22, which is where we're going to be spending our time this morning, about a thousand years before Jesus' ministry, and we see that promise made. So as you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms 22, allow me to give you a little bit of context for our reading today. The 22nd book of Psalms is believed to have been written by David. And you'll see from the first words in Psalms 22, in verse 1, that David is clearly in a time of suffering. You know, scholars don't exactly know what David was referring to, but they do know that he is in a deep, deep valley. And as we continue to read on, we realize that this passage is not just about David. That is speaking to us and it's prophesying about the Messiah who's going to be coming a thousand years from the time that David wrote this. And we're going to see the remarkable detail in this prophecy we're going to look at it a little bit later. But, but today, I want to focus not just on what David wrote to the Israelites in that time, because there was an application there. But we sort of know the end of that story, right? And so we know that he's prophesying about the Messiah. And so I want us to focus today on what David here is prophesying about Jesus. Because the Old Testament, this passage in the entire Old Testament, is really just pointing to the fulfillment of the promise that God gave us and the fulfillment that he promised through Jesus. So my prayer today is that as we walk through this passage, that you'll see it through a different lens, and you'll realize that hope really can be found in our suffering. So let's start by looking at verse 1 in Psalms 22, which reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. This isn't just a prayer, right? This is a cry to God, right? This isn't the prayer that you say with your kids at Chick-fil-A before you eat your meal. This is the, like, take the gloves off, let's get real, put all the cards on the table, raw, real, urgent prayer, right? And that's exactly the situation that we find Jesus in when he says these same exact words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most of you who maybe have grown up in church or have been here a while, you recognize those words immediately, right? And you attributed them to Jesus. It's impossible for us not to. But if you're like me and you grew up in church, 
chances are you may have recognized that as Jesus' cry, but you also recognize it as like this abandoned plea, right? Like somehow God duped Jesus into this whole crucifixion thing and then left him, right? Like this was some futile attempt by a lesser part of the Trinity to be rescued by a God who had no choice but to turn his back on his own son in his most desperate hour. I don't know about you guys, but that's never sat right with me. So I want to challenge that assumption this morning by telling you this. The father did not forsake his son. I'm going to repeat that. The father did not forsake his son. He's not going to leave you in your pain either. When Jesus was in his darkest moment, his skin ripped open from the lashings, nails in his hands and his feet, in his most vulnerable anguish, he yearns to feel that closeness with the father. That closeness he's experienced for 33 years all of a sudden just feels distant. Like I said, I don't know what your experience was growing in church, but I learned that in this moment God was distant. Right, That because God laid the sins of the world on Jesus, God couldn't be around sin, and so he had to abandon his own son and turn his back on him. And I'm not even sure I realize, you know, at the moment, but... This idea of, of God not being able to be around sin started to take root, and all these lies started to creep into my head. Like, how could a good father turn his back on his son in his greatest time of need? Right? And if God could abandon Jesus in that moment, Jesus who is perfect, how would he treat me in my sin? Right? It made me want to start hiding my sin from God rather than confess it. It made me want to to turn my back on him, right? This lie that God would turn our back on us because he can't be around sin had the opposite effect, and I found myself turning my back on him. Listen, real hope. God did not forsake Jesus. He didn't forsake Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. He didn't didn't forsake Cain when he killed Abel. He didn't forsake any of them in their sin. There's no verse in Scripture that says that he would have to abandon those that are living in sin. The entire Old Testament shows us a God who pursues us despite our sin, right? Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They turned their back. It was God who pursued them. So this whole lie about God not being able to be around sin, I'm not sure exactly where that comes from, but I want to I just debunk that this morning, right? Because you look in the New Testament, you look at Paul, right? Paul was killing Christians. So if there was somebody who God couldn't be around because there was sin there, it would, it would be Paul. But instead, God pursues him, and he changes him, and he uses Paul to change the world as we know it. The whole reason Jesus came to earth was for the sinners. He came to pursue sin and to rid our lives of it. God didn't go anywhere. If you jump with me down to verse 24, we'll catch a glimpse of what I believe was God's response. He says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So when David wrote those words, and when Jesus cried them from the cross, they came from a place of agony, not of doubt. And the irony here is that the Israelites in that time, who would have known this scripture from top to bottom, would have known that that was a cry of agony and not of doubt because we read, as we're going to read here in a minute, starting in, in verse 3, that David, he knew God was going to be faithful. 
But we can exist in this place where we can feel suffering, but also know that God is faithful. And that's where the hope comes this morning. And as we read along in verse 3, we read, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises, and you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Now, I have to be honest. When I was going through that valley with my family, the last thing I could do was remember God's faithfulness to me or even to others, right? We get so lost in our own suffering that it's hard to even imagine being pulled out of that. Even as people share with you their testimonies about how God rescued them out of their suffering. I remember people coming around our family, and it just sort of fell on deaf ears. I think one of the reasons for that is summed up really well by Charles Spurgeon, who says, when reflecting on this very passage, Experience of other saints may be a great consolation to us when in deep waters, if faith can be sure that their deliverance will be ours. But when we feel ourselves sinking, it is poor comfort to know that others are swimming. It's hard to remember that, we're, that God's faithful when we're sinking, right? Like, it's hard to focus on anything other than ourselves because that's the nature of suffering is it turns our focus inward. And if you've ever felt like you were drowning literally or figuratively, you know that your focus can only be on yourself. And when you do that, especially if you're literally like sinking in water, you're just going to start to become more scared and panic, and then your situation's only going to get worse. But when we remember God's faithfulness, we can shift our focus outwards. It's like feeling like we're sinking, and then we remember God's faithfulness like being pulled up onto a lifeboat. And all of a sudden, we can look for others who are sinking. And of course, Jesus models this perfectly for us, as he always does. Even on the cross, you notice in the book of Luke, Jesus hanging there, looking at his, the people who are murdering him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And even later, looking to the side of him and saving one of the criminals hanging there with him on the cross. He clearly wasn't focused inward. He was focused outward. One of my favorite passages of scripture is when Jesus is hanging there on the cross in the midst of agony, and he sees his mother. And he makes sure that she is cared for after he is gone. I mean, who can do that? And somebody who's assured of God's faithfulness, who knows the end of the story, and even in the midst of his suffering, can find that peace and that hope and turn his focus outward towards others. And notice the words that this psalm uses. It says, you alone are enthroned on the praises of Israel. Another word that can be used for enthroned there is dwelling. It goes on to say, he delivered them. He saved them. All of these words show a God who is present, who is personal. This isn't a God who is going to leave you in the midst of your suffering. It's a God who is going to join you in your pain. And to me, that makes all the difference. Tim Keller put it really well when he said, Suffering can refine us rather than destroy us because God himself walks with us in the fire. Our entire perspective can change if we see that fire is not meant for destruction, but for purification. I mean, how many of you have seen friends going through unimaginable pain, but still dwelling in this sweet, strong peace? I have a friend who, who lost his parents from a young age, and fairly recently he and his wife gave birth to a stillborn baby. Unimaginable pain throughout his life. 
but still I see him worshiping with his hands raised, and I, I can't help but think that the only explanation is that Jesus is walking with him through that pain. A couple weeks ago, I was in Rwanda, and we got to meet with some survivors of the genocide. For those of you who aren't familiar, back in 1994, about a million people were killed in cold blood in Rwanda, not by a military attack, but by their neighbors. And we met this woman named Beatrice, and she told us this heart-wrenching story of her entire family being murdered by this one man. And I'm sitting there just emotional, as you could imagine. Then she introduces this man. She stands there holding his hands, embracing him. These two have reconciled. They're worshiping together. Through World Vision, they've started a business together. I mean, there's no other way to explain that than Jesus was walking with through each of them in their very different suffering and has reconciled them. I mean, you want to talk about finding hope in suffering. I have never seen anything like that. But it exists all over the country of Rwanda. The reconciliation is incredible. So I know that you're experiencing pain this morning or that you've experienced pain in your past. But there is hope to be found in that suffering because Jesus is walking with us through it, even if it feels like right now that he's not there. He is. He is faithful. If you're going through that time right now, I need you to know that God will not forsake you. You're not going through that trial alone. So whether you're feeling the pain of, of loss from a detachment, from a broken relationship, whatever that is, you're feeling that heat inside the furnace, right? And it's so hard to focus on anything other than the pain. And that's okay. It's okay to feel that pain, but cry out to God because he is faithful. He'll use that fire to refine you, and he will walk with you every step of the way. He is faithful, and he will be with you in the midst of your suffering because he loves you, and he has called you worthy. So as we come back to the text, we're going to start to see the prophecy of the crucifixion unfold with really incredible accuracy. Now, we've witnessed the emotional torment, or we've gotten a glimpse of that emotional torment that Jesus went through. Right, feeling forsaken. And we're about to hear about the intimate details of the physical torture that he faced. And let me remind you that this passage was written about a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. And not only that, its specific mention of crucifixion, crucifixion as a, a tool of execution hadn't even been invented yet. It wouldn't be invented for another 600 years. All right, so if you're doubting this prophecy at all, don't, because there's the other piece too, is that this passage... Psalms 22 is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, dated back to about 100 years before Christ was crucified. This isn't just like revisionist history here. This is one of the most accurate prophetic texts that we have. So keep all that in mind as we pick back up in verse 6, which reads, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And then jump with me down to verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. 
Now, if you're familiar with Jesus' crucifixion and that story, you're already connecting the dots here, right? By this point, we've seen at least four direct connections between Jesus' crucifixion story in Matthew 27 and what we read here in Psalms 22. I've got a chart they're going to put up behind me that shows you those direct connections. This isn't any accident, right? It's kind of like God knew what he was doing here. And we need to understand the importance of the prophecy fulfilled and how amazing that was. But don't let it distract you from the sacrifice that was made because Jesus, the one who knew no sin, took on sin for us. The creator of the universe lowered himself to the point of being scorned by his own creation for us. Jesus, who who lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, died the sinner's death we deserve to die, He took it all on for us. So if he was willing to take on that suffering for us, how much more willing is he going to be to walk through that suffering with us? It's amazing to see how accurate this prophecy is. And if you love to study the word like I do, I geek out on this stuff. But the purpose of prophecy isn't just to predict the future. It's to reveal to us the hope that exists and the promise fulfilled in Jesus. And it's to reveal to us the path towards our redemption. So as we pick back up in verse 22, you're going to notice a clear transition here. It's like the darkness of the crucifixion has passed. And Jesus has set his eyes on his triumph and not on his torture. Verse 22 reads, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. That's what happens. When we remember God's faithfulness, we can return to a place of reverence. I've always been struck by the fact that when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He calls him my God. If you look at throughout the rest of the red letters in the Bible, you see that Jesus calls God my Father. But in this moment, he feels so distant He cries out to my God. But notice, before he utters his final words, he returns to that reverence and says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Carrying on in verse 24, we read, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And I want you to pay careful attention here because God may have laid the load of our sin upon Jesus, but it wasn't because Jesus drew the short straw here, right? It wasn't because Jesus had to pay the price. It's because he wanted to, right? Again, with that lie that that God abandoned Jesus, we also get this idea that somehow Jesus was the one who had to pay this price and that, you know, he was alone in this. But he was fulfilling his purpose, the purpose that his father had set for him. Yes, he sweat in the garden. Yes, he cried out in agony on the cross. That's because of the physical toll that he was taking to fulfill this promise. But make no mistake about it. He wanted to do this. His desire was to do the will of the father, period. And that's why I love in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. 
we so easily draw this connection between suffering and the disfavor of God, right? But it says right here, he did not despise the suffering of the afflicted one. That means he didn't hate the pain that Jesus had to go through because he knew the purpose. He knew that it was bringing about our redemption. And so here comes the charge for us. In verse 25, it says, From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. This is how we are to respond to God's faithfulness and to his sacrifice, with praise and obedience. Even in the midst of suffering, we can praise him for his faithfulness. When he calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him, this, this is what he was talking about, right? Taking up our cross isn't saying that when things are going good, yeah, I'll take up that cross. That's, that's a pretty easy one to bear, right? He's talking about in our deepest, darkest moments, when my family's falling apart, when you lose that loved one, when your entire family gets murdered, In Rwanda in 1994, he's saying, you take up that cross. And notice he says, take up that cross and follow me. Because he has been in that pain. He has experienced that agony. And he's going to lead us through it. And I know what you're thinking. It's like, Ryan, how how can I possibly rejoice in the midst of my suffering? Like, you have no idea what I'm experiencing. And you're right, I don't. But I know what it feels like to feel like you're drowning. I know what it feels like to feel like it takes all my energies to just to keep myself together. How am I exposed? To, how am I supposed to fe- experience joy, right? How can I, how can I find joy in the midst of, of sadness, in the midst of incredible pain? Well, you can find joy in knowing. You can find joy in knowing that your Savior knows your suffering. You can find joy in knowing that your pain has a purpose. And you can find joy in knowing that your suffering will one day end and you will experience the hope that exists in our eternity. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And I read that, I, I don't know, I feel a little bit insulted. Like, my pain is not light or momentary, right? But compared to our eternity, compared to the glory that we will experience, it really is. And here is where we get a glimpse of the ultimate purpose for our suffering. Here is where the good news comes in. So read with me in verse 26. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about him. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. On the cross, Jesus declared that victory. He said, it is finished. That was him saying, I'm not suffering in vain. It was him saying that this agony is not wasted, that every single drop of blood that was shed was shed for a reason. He fulfilled his promise through suffering, and he prepared a way for our eternity with him. So I want you to know this morning that your suffering has purpose. We can rejoice in that. 
First Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Guys, like it or not, suffering is at the heart of our faith. It's not just the way that Christ redeemed us, but it's also the way that we can become more like him. That right there is the purpose in our suffering. That's the purpose in our pain. That is why our suffering is good news. It's because it makes us more like Jesus. It makes us more like Jesus by attacking our pride. Think about those times you've experienced that incredible pain and the ways that it's humbled you. Think about the ways that it, it's ex- exposed lies in your heart, right? That it's revealed idols that you've built up in the place of Jesus. How it kind of just strips away and just purifies everything and leaves us in this raw and real state where our only hope is found in Jesus. What if we as the church chose to rejoice in our suffering, to rejoice in our pain? What if when others came to comfort us in our suffering, we reminded them of God's faithfulness? What if we found the purpose of our pain is to draw closer to Jesus and to point others to him? It's time that we stop fearing pain and start embracing God's mercy. It's time that we find the hope that exists in our suffering. I want to leave you with this verse from Romans. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, but God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Your suffering has purpose. Your pain has a purpose. And that purpose is to bring hope to a world living in fear, to bring light to a world that is living in darkness. Would you pray with me?